are listening to The Sidebar, courtesy of the New York Association of Black Journalists, a program about the world of media as seen through the lens of black media makers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this particular episode of The Sidebar, the podcast of the New York Association of Black Journalists. I am your host for this particular episode, Michael W. Ray. And it is an honor and a privilege to sit with my guest today. My guest today has a resume that is longer than the average red carpet. My guest today has been a band leader, has written music, has uh, been a music uh, supervisor for film. He's been a front man, side man, superb session musician. But I think the thing that is I search for quotes, the one thing I think that sums up my guest the best was written by a music critic named Steve Huey. He wrote, Reed's rampant electricism encompasses everything from heavy metal to punk to funk, R&B and avant-garde jazz. And his anarchic lightning fast solos have become something of a hallmark as well. My guest was named the number 66 greatest guitarist of all time in 2003 by Rolling Stone magazine. My guest today, the founder and creator of the iconic black rock band Living Color, the great Mr. Vernon Reed. Mr. Reed, thank you for joining us today. Man, that buildup, man, I'm looking around. Who are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. My, my, my pleasure. When, when, I, when I started to do my background and go to digging, I was like, and I'm very due diligent. So as I'm doing my due diligence, I can always tell the substance of the individual by the amount of volumes of back-end reading. I love the backstory. Why did you choose the guitar you play? Why do you string it the way you do? Why do you like those strings? I'm that kind of individual. So as I began to research, Vernon Reed, it just ran everywhere. Mr. October, music supervisor, uh, streaming radio, uh, the the uh, underground vinyl series, right? So it's like, there's so much here. So in the past 10 days, it has been an honor and a privilege, sir, to research you. So thank you on behalf of myself, my organization, and of course, my listeners. Let me start with this. To ask this question, your answer would be, and my question is, who is Vernon Reed? Huh. Well, uh, this is fun. this is funny. Well, Vernon Reed is <laughs> one of these weird things because you know, talking about myself in the third person is one of those things I try to avoid. You know, what I mean? right. it's like that's a sign, you know, <laughs> uh, sign of the symptom. But you know, I would say for myself, I mean, I'm I'm a, a, a musician who came up in the latter half of the 20th century. And because I was exposed to certain things and had certain opportunities, and I grew up in an environment that allowed for me to develop as a musician, I was also very fortunate to meet the people I've met, and, and I had wide interest in music. So when I started to play, it's kind of funny. Uh, I just started to play because I love music, and then I was given a, a basically... I was given a guitar by a cousin, and I had this guitar. I started playing really late. I was a 
in my mid-teens, I was 15, which really a lot of the wonderful guitar players, they start when they're eight, you know. My family is an immigrant family, you know, from the Caribbean. And in, in a lot of ways, music as a profession was very not on their radar as a possibility. And it, it was kind of like a hobby that turned into an obsession, which turned into uh, the career that I have. Okay, so about Vernon Reed, I'm a person, I'm an artist who's very interested in, in different forms, different ways of expression, different means of expression, um, everything from acoustic to electronic music, um, different styles, everything from, you know, I have a free jazz, harmonic jazz, not the same thing, um, to blues. I mean, everything is really grounded in blues, to rock, you know, rock, to hard rock, punk, metal and all the various hybrids of these things as well as i mentioned you know dj music i recognize the dj as an instrumentalist and i think about that in terms of art movements like um like marcel duchamp the the french artist dada you know this whole idea of conceptual art and i actually think about the turntable as the ultimate expression of dadaism like one one of the things that Marcel Duchamp said was that art is what I say it is, right? And so that's why he had a sculpture that was called Bull, and it was basically a bicycle seat and handlebars, and it looked vaguely like a bull, and he called it Bull. And he kind of turned the art world upside down and partly was one of the artists and theorists that kind of brought conceptual art into the fold. And, and why I say that the turntable is like the one of the last true expressions of Dadaism is because the turntable is an appliance to play music. It was not meant, it was never meant to be an instrument. And, and what had happened was that DJs messing around, the first scratch came on and, and it's kind of like you want to avoid scratching. And somehow this is the aesthetic of ill. The sound was so arresting, so quote unquote ill that, you know, DJs like, you know, and there is some dispute because, you know, people give a cool hurt from the Bronx the, the credit, but also I've heard that Grand Wizard Theodore was actually kind of the first cat to actually do this move. And, you know, and then he turned around and then they doubled down on it, right? They took, they took what was essentially a mistake and they said, what? And, and, you know, the first person to scratch a record, you know, the crowd was outraged. The crowd was not, the crowd was not happy with that innovation. It was like, what you trying to do? And uh, next thing you know, he said, wait a minute, you know what? Rip, 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 rip. Wait a minute, this is a thing. And that is amazing to me. Like some kind of happy accident happened right. that, that, that allowed for what is essentially something you would normally avoid to become something that you do. And see, to me, that's one of the aspects of Black culture is that thing that you, the ability to take something that ain't supposed to be what it is and to make it into what it is, right? It's like it's like when Adolf Sachs invented the saxophone, he thought it was going to take the classical music world by storm, but it actually wound up becoming a very minor instrument in the classical canon of instruments. And it kind of had become like a, 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 a craze almost like a very complicated kazoo, right? So Adolf Sachs is not imagining in his wildest imagination, Coleman Hawkins 
You know, he's not imagining a John Coltrane. He certainly ain't thinking about a John Gilmore. He's not thinking about an Eric Dolphy or a Wayne Shorter. You know what I mean? And so this instrument, which was kind of at a minor place in the classical world, became one of the main state instruments of jazz. So again, it's another one of these situations where, you know, this thing that was supposed to be something else became another thing. And, and we see this again and again in black culture, like, you know, like basketball was meant to be group physical therapy. It was meant to be group physical therapy. It was not meant to become what it became. Billion dollar industry. Billion dollar, a billion dollar industry in the same way that hip hop, hip hop, when hip hop came into it, into the scrimmage, it was novelty music. It was really considered novelty music. And musicians dismissed it. See, this is funny, because I remember when it kind of came in, I was kind of with us, man, you know, this is very interesting. I thought it was really interesting. And part of the reason why I had this feeling about it is also part of a personal story, because um, I went to a technical high school. It's not a music school by any stretch of the imagination. Brooklyn Tech, right? Brooklyn That's Tech. One of my, my best friends in life, you know, rest in peace, Mr. Raymond Jones, phenomenal piano player. He changed my life because when I, when I met him in the back of history class, cutting up, very funny dude. And, you know, when we were young, 15, whatever, I said, so well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he looked me dead in the eye and said, I am a piano player. And, I, and that struck me because nobody talked like that. Nobody spoke like that about what they were doing at that at such a young age. Raymond, uh, he was a cut up. He used to cut class. He, he really wanted to go to the M&A. He wound up leaving tech. We, we stayed connected. He went to city ass school where they had like a kind of uh, experimental curriculum. Okay. And, and, and eventually he joined, he was playing around in different bands and whatnot. And eventually he joined uh, the band Chic. And, and Chic is, is one of the preeminent of the, of the disco era they were the band. There was GQ, and of course, you know, Pete Funk had made, but in terms of the bands, right? Yeah, Cheek was a disco band, you know, now, now Rogers and Bernard Edwards, you know. So the thing, my, the point of it is this friend of mine that I went to high school with, he plays on Good Times. He's playing the role. When you hear Good Times, the Fender Rhodes part of Good Times is played by Raymond Jones. That song, with the iconic bass line, that became the basis for Rapper's Delight. That became the basis for Rapper's Delight. And, and it's credited often as the first, you know, first hip hop right. record, right? Officially, it's, Officially it's, right. you know, even though I always say it's really here come the judge, Pygmy Markham, you know, back in the days so on Stacks, mm-hmm. you listen to Pig, if you listen to Here Come the Judge, it's a break beat, it's a backbeat with my man, the comedian, rapping on top of it. And, you know, that's that's just me nerding out, blurting out. Anyway. I, I, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Because, you know, I'll be listening to it again. I've heard it, but I've never really listened. Like- you listen to it. If you check it again, if you check the stack single of Here Come the Judge by Pygmy Markham, it's hip-hop. I never had a feeling around playing rock and roll because I de- identified so many groups as rock and roll groups, like the Isley Brothers, with Ernie Isley playing guitar, you know what I mean? That, that to me, I mean, that's black rock. And in fact, that's rock music. And the thing about it is that the Isley Brothers have never been fully recognized for being 
not just an R&B group, but a literally a rock and roll band. I mean, they, Jimi Hendrix was in the family band, right? So there are all these things that, um, that uh, add to the way I, my outlook about music and culture. Let me let me let me just veer to the right real quick to ask to, to, to ask this question. You mentioned um Carlos Santana making Black Magic Woman. If you no one told you, you would have thought it was his. Yes. Is it fair to put along the watchtower in that same breath? I know oh. Dylan wrote it, but when you think of along the watchtower, at least yes. my generation, when you think of along the watchtower, you think of Hendrix. Well, Hendrix, I mean, Hendrix was one of the the true, I mean, he he so redefined performance, redefined performance on guitar, but also as a songwriter, people generally focused on the fact that he's an incredible guitarist. He's also a great showman. That's what that's what got him fired from Little Richard. You know, he would he would come and you know, and and, and really, and this is also a, a, a in a way a conversation about the Chitlin circuit because in the circuit. You know, there's a hierarchy to this. To the, it's a hierarchical situation. The singer is the leader of the band. The singer is what people identify, who, who people identify with, and the degree. You know, in a way, uh, any musician that plays with the singer, they are there to ornament. The They're there as an ornament, and they are there to represent the band leader's good taste. Right? You are ornament, and you and you being nice on your instrument. Is like, well, I work with the greatest musicians in the world. I mean, it's like, it's a tribute to the band leader. So when, you know, Little Richard, and mind you, um, Little Richard was the protege of Sister Rosetta Tharp. So he knew about guitar playing from the top, right? And Sister Rosetta Tharp has only recently been given her props. For the longest time, you know, the, the dialogue has been, you know, you go straight from Charlie Christian, you know, to T-Bone Walker, to Chuck Berry on a level. But you go, you turn around and listen to Sister Rosetta Tharp. Sister Rosetta Tharp was a badass on guitar. I mean, Sister Rosetta, Sister Rosetta Tharp need, needed to be restored in her, as her part in the lineage of guitar playing. Guitar. You know what I mean? As well, as well as a Memphis Mini, but I'm talking about electric guitar. guitar right. So, like, her soloing, is, she's, off, she's off the chain. Sister Rosetta Tharp is off the chain. And the only thing is, she never... She never broke out of the gospel arena. She was firmly in the gospel arena, but she was kind of like glam rock before, you know, before there was glam rock. You know what I mean? With a gold Les Paul and things, you know what I mean? And uh, having a carriage, arriving in a carriage and all of those things. So, you know, Little Richard learned his craft at her knee, right? So he hires Jimi Hendrix, and in Jimi Hendrix, he's supposed to get his little eight bars and you know this 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 boy decides to go to town. He puts the guitar between his legs, behind his back, da da da. You know, because he only got eight bars to do something. So he's taking, he's going to ball, he's going for his in the in the brief amount of time. And and little Richard did not appreciate that. You're not gonna show you're not gonna out show the showman. So you know what I mean. So he got he got sent packing. You know, and there was you know uh, there was a Joe Boy produced uh, movie called a film about Jimi Hendrix and. I tell you, if y'all don't know this movie, you have to check this movie out just for the little Richard, the little Richard excerpt where he talks about Jimi Hendrix. It's fan, it's fan, it's fantastic. And and there's a whole, obviously, Mr. Pennyman, 
Um, and, you know, and in fact, Mr. Pennyman crossed paths with my band Living Color, and and he's so crucial as a vocalist and as a stylist, you know what I mean, and as a persona. Um, it can't be overstated how important Little Richard, because Little Richard of the of the rock and roll vocalist, untouchable, as a vocal, un, untouchable, like no doubt. And you can talk about Escovel as an influence, but real talk, like Richard Pennyman took it to the to the to the hell. To the heights, okay. You know what I mean? And, and in fact, all the lead vocalists, all the singers, like Paul McCartney and bands, when they owe a lot, you know, to to Little Richard. But, but anyway, the thing about Jimi Hendrix is that, as you mentioned, the Watchtower, Bob Dylan was like a living influence on Hendrix. Like you, when you go and listen to his tunes, his tunes are, are very original, but the influence of Dylan in the wordplay is very, very obvious. You listen to The Wind Cries Mary. Uh, you listen to Castles Made of Sand. Hendrix's worldview was not a sugar-coated hippie situation. You know what I mean? He he brought like ice cold reality to, you know, his his music, there was a bite to the lyrics. And I think that's partly, of course, that's a lot of that is him. But um Bob Dylan, you know, Bob Dylan brought this this kind of um not fatalism, but he brought a kind of he didn't sugarcoat. Right. He didn't sugarcoat things. And that was part of what he um, from crossing over from the folk thing when he went electric and people got got really mad at him. But Dylan was so influential, and Hendrix really was open about the influence. And but he took it in his own direction, and that's the beautiful thing about considering his songs. As we as we dig through your your uh, your biography, your discography, can you talk a little bit about? in 1985, circa thereof, the founding of the Black Rock Coalition. Sure. I mean, basically, I'm one of four four or five co-founders um, of, the, of the organization. And it wasn't an organization at first. I, was, I went to see uh, my friend's band, I and I, and it was uh, Melvin Gibbs and D.K. Dyson. And and in fact, they they were the first band. They were the second band because the Herbie Hancock's Rocket Band being the first. They were the second band and the first rock and roll band that had a DJ as a regular member of the lineup. Oh wow! Yeah, and DJ Logic. That's how I met DJ Logic. And DJ Logic was seventeen from the Bronx, and 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 ba- subsequently. DJ Logic worked with me. He's all over my my um my record mistaken identity. And then he wound up working with Modesky Martin and Wood and a lot of people in the jam situation, you know. But um how I met him was there. And I went to this gig at CBGB's and I'd had a, a, a run of gigs. You know, I'd started this band that became Living Color, and it was kind of very frustrating getting gigs was frustrating. You know, seeing the attendance was frustrating, and I just saw all around that the situation in the '80s had gotten. It was kind of wide open in the early '80s. It really was kind of wide open, and and then all of a sudden the vibe of it all changed, and it got very kind of almost restrictive, and and it got a little bit. You know, it gets it just got a little bit weird. Now there were some cool folks 
around. Um, but just the atmosphere, you know, that's when like the velvet rope and you will go hang out at a club one day and the next day you go back to the club and they're not letting you in. So that's the kind of thing that was going on at okay. that time. Okay. okay. And um, I just started making, I made a round of phone calls. I just called a whole bunch of folks. And I, and I, and, uh, and we had our first meeting at uh, Linda Good Bryant had a gallery uh, called the Just Above Midtown Gallery. It was downtown. It had moved from mid, Just Above Midtown to downtown uh, on Broadway okay. by Spring Street. And we and we basically, I called Greg Tate, and, and I just made a round of phone calls for people. And um, and we all met. And we were just, and it was just really like, yo, am I, why? and they were like, what? So, okay, so we all here, what's up? I said, yo, man, is it is is thing, are things getting weird downtown? Are things getting weird around here? It feels like very it used to be cool and now suddenly it's it's getting I was just really trying to it was a head check, you know, because it was just like, is it me? And I was prepared for something, man, that's saying that. But everybody said, yo, man, it is getting weird. One of one of the people that showed up was Conda Mason. She was um manager of a band, all female band called ISIS, and they were having a rough time. Um, and it was, it was, uh, you know, Craig Street was there, you know, who, uh, he's a great producer, um, produced Cassandra Wilson amongst other artists. And, um, yeah, so it was, it was a gang of us that showed up and I had come to know Greg Tate. He had written about myself and Ronnie Drayton. We were on the cover of Musician Magazine. That was the first kind of real serious coverage that we ever got. And I met him. I was playing with Defunk down in D.C., and he was, uh, he's from Ohio, but he wound up, you know, living in D.C. for for a while. And then he uh, he said, yo, I'm coming up to New York, you know, and he was just kind of coming into the scrimmage as a, as a journalist. And we subsequently became very, very, very close friends. Um, and, uh, you know, and he uh, passed away. On December seventh, and it was so so funny because December seventh, um, it was it was kind of uh, that was the first event that we had in 1985. That was our first party, the Black Rock Coalition, uh, our first fundraising party. So the irony of of Greg passing in in 2021, December seventh, um, yeah, it's. Uh, it, it's it's a loss that I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole just yet, but yeah. So anyway, he's he's the one that wrote the manifesto. I mean, we we met a couple of times. We met one week, then we got together the next week, and and I think it was Craig Street. Some you know said, "Well, what are we gonna do about it? What are we gonna do about it?" You know, and um, and then Greg wrote the Black Rock Coalition manifesto, and that's when you know, it eventually became an organization. And it was funny, I, you know, I'm one of the founders, but I didn't, you know, um, I didn't call the people with that idea in mind. I was really just, yo, check, check, <laughs> yo, right. is, it me? Is, it, is it me? Occasionally you got to call your people and say, is it me? Is it me? <laughs> you know, and, and, so, and, some, and you, you got 50-50 chance, they might look at you and go, it is you. So, right, especially if they're really your people. Yeah, um, if they're really your people, they, they'll tell you, right? Right. Now, with things getting crazy, this this some might consider this an 
a response to the craziness. The debut album, Vivid, double mm-hmm. platinum, yeah. over 2 million sold, which at that point in time, platinum selling record was really a platinum selling record. Mm-hmm. Your second album goes gold, two consecutive Grammy Awards for best hard rock performance. How do those moments feel based on the landscape being a black man? Well, first of all, it's a very surreal moment. And and honestly, the band changed really the the band realizes potential when the band expanded. At first, you know, the band was just a trio and um and I, I was the vocalist and I was very self-conscious about it. You know, I, I have an okay voice, but I, I can't holler, right? You know, so I met this guy at a party at the insistence of going to his party with my sister and uh and you know, I tell the happy birthday story, you know, we we were at this party. And it's the only, it's still only party where only, it's filled with people, only one person saying happy birthday. It was Corey Glover. And, you know, I realized later on, this was some years back, and I reached out, you know, I was thinking about what did I want to do. I said, man, I want to, I think I want to see, check this singer out that I met. And, uh, you know, I called him up and he came by the house. I was living back. It's a crazy story. It was, you know, I was back home with my parents, which is another horrible story <laughs> of your two imagine. horrible. I can only imagine horrendous story of my twenties. Anyway, um, he came through, and he was like, he was down, you know. And then we wound up subsequently writing the song "Middleman," and um, I had by at that point I, I had a loft. I had a loft in Bushwick. And um, I loved in Bushwick. I built the stage. It was rich, you know, the original members of the band um, had split. Um, and but we we split on good terms. So I had this this kind of loft space in Bushwick. One of my best friends at the time, still best friend, is, is Richard Admiral Obama, one of the original graffiti writers of the Bronx, like one of the one of the for real people from back in the days. He was also shared. He had a, he, it was a twenty five hundred square feet. It was big. It was a big spot. Mm-hmm. And, and he had a, and a he spot. had a, and he basically had a painting studio, you know. And so that was kind of the vibe, you know. What I mean, and eventually, um, one thing led to another thing, um, to to c- cut through all the things. You know, other people that came through, and eventually, Will Calhoun and Mud Skillings. Uh, became the the uh, drummer and bassist for the band, and I met Muzz really through a member of the Black Rock Coalition, Bill Tolles from Queens. He said, "You got to hear this kid that I know," and and it turns out we both went to Brooklyn Tech. It was still a little bit staggered, you know what I mean? So, um, and there's because it's a funny thing between musicians from Queens and Brooklyn. You know, we don't always kind of swing, but occasionally. You know, we'll, 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 there'll be a rapprochement. You know what I mean? They'll be like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and uh, so, so Muzz was cool, and and uh, 
and Wills from the Bronx. I mean, we represented at that point, you know, three out of five boroughs. You know, Corey and myself are from Brooklyn. Will Calhoun, he was born in Brooklyn, but he he's from the Bronx, and Muskillings is from Queens at that time. So you know that, and we uh, started rehearsing regularly, and you know the band had been off and on, kind of building a bit of a following, but it was really when Corey joined the band. And and at a certain point, he went, he he left for a while to make the movie Platoon. And um, and when he came back, you know, I did a gig with this, this other brother named Mark Ledford, fantastic trumpeter, vocalist, you know. Um, unfortunately, Mark's no longer with us. He actually was also in a Pat Metheny group after you know we did a couple of things and and basically um i was like yo man i said corey this is your gig man you know like you had to take a break to make this movie but this is your thing you know and he came back to it and uh basically we went to some changes and then we started to really kind of gain a bit of a following we started to you know start to pick up it, it's very interesting the bands had a crazy career of opening for different groups like we, you know we i opened for fishbone their very first show in new york and and this is when they were young and truly insane i mean <laughs> I, I never seen a band with that kind of energy ever you know that was a just to watch um you know the the carnation of living color that I got to grow up with the cult of personality and uh, seeing you got uh, uh, MTV. I mean, not a whole lot of black faces on MTV. Now yeah. here we go. We don't just have black faces on MTV. We have black faces playing a genre of music that contemporary Midwestern mainstream, mm -hmm. would, you know, lay down in the street over traffic to state claim to. Now here you guys are trendsetters, trailblazers, it, but it was done in such a manner that, and just from talking to you, I can gather that it was done out of the love of music, out of the enjoyment of playing yeah. together, not necessarily as the ulterior motive to, I want to arrive on MTV. No, man, not at all. And it's funny because um, part of the argument from, say, the Black Rock Coalition on the east side, east coast, and Afropunk, I'm talking about James Spooner's original notion of Afropunk on the West Coast. I mean, the, the central idea, and, and separated by generation, you know what I mean? Because James is younger. And part of the thing, and we both have been influenced by the Bad Brains from DC. Okay. So our whole contention is that, and, and we're going against the tide, but we I never accepted the premise that rock music was not black music or rock music was solely the music of white people i never accepted the premise right so many people culturally on our side you know because it's so, are so identified with white young men it's anathema to them and and it's and it's really not it's got they don't dig the music or they or they don't dig what it's associated with and I think one of the things that pained Hendrix a great deal was the fact that many people really didn't identify with black people, didn't identify with him. And, you know, and he was accused of being all kind of, 
you know, kind of he's accused of being all kind of things, you know, people call him out his name. Right. And what you know, and some folks thought he was trying to be a white boy. And I, and I listen to that, and I go, ain't no white boy gonna come up with something like voodoo child. That's not happening, right? So no, not at all, not at whatever, all. Whatever you're thinking about, you know, and this is a part of the issue in a way with um our disconnection to one another, our mistrust of each other. I mean, even as we often talk about you know, Black unity as an aspiration. We do have many, many issues. Issues between the genders. We have issues, we don't really talk about it, In to me, is regional issues. They're real regional issues. And I've seen that up close. Like I went to a Black arts festival, you know, as part of the thing with, uh, that Greg was doing. And there was a Black arts festival and it was amazing to me like they're all people dressed in very cultural attire, dressed in their mud cloth and their kente cloth, and we're all coming together. But the people from, from Chicago were not talking to the people from Philadelphia. The people from California not talking to the people from Milwaukee. You know, the and it's just like, you know, one time, one time, I was at uh, 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 the Hard Rock Cafe. Actually, yeah. No, no, no. It was. Um, whatchamacallit, uh, the House of Blues, House of Blues in Los Angeles. And there was a, a woman who was um, doing the catering for the band, you know, doing catering. And I just was like having a conversation with her. So I asked, I said, so what to you, what was, what, what, who was the worst? Like, who was the, the most, <laughs> and without hesitation, she looked at me and said, I hate working, working the gospel brunch. I said, why? And she said, you know what it was? What it is, is what happens that you got these different choirs and different churches, right? And when they're in the room together, they talk about give God the glory and all the things. And as soon as the people go on stage, the people in the room start talking about them like a dog. Like a dog. Like a dog. Like a dog. And this is a, a issue. And it's an issue. I mean, and the issue is, oh, the issue is, oh, I was checking out Les Payne's book about great black journalists was talking about Les Payne's book about Malcolm X. And he was writing about Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Malcolm Little's father was Garvey. And it turns out that Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois despised one another. They, they despised one another. Really? And it came down to the to the shade issue, the colorism scenario, and and Marcus Garvey, he started going in about well, you know, these light skin. This he he went there with, it. and this is stuff that people don't generally know. They just see him looking resplendent, dressed like a captain, and he's a symbol, but the details get lost. And and of course, W. D. Du Bois responded. Because you know he's he's educated dude, and he's like you know what I mean. So they had this conflict, and I didn't realize that this these conflicts go back a long way, and and the conflicts are international in nature, they're regional in nature, and getting around and over that is really a uh, difficult is a difficult task for us. 
And, you know, people focus on rock music, but the same situation is that about, you know, the white, quote unquote, the white audience. But, you know, and, and the dispute about rock and roll music, of course, as I said before, a lot of us in the situation, we don't accept the premise of rock and roll being white people music. We don't accept the premise, right? So, and that, and that will put us at odds with people that do insist on it because it's an identity thing for them. Well, I would say, look at the blues situation. There is no dispute about where blues come from. If you look at the audiences for blues festivals or what have you, the blues audiences, mainly white people. Mainly white people, yes. You know, and then I turn around and say, okay, take the jazz situation. You know, it, it, and in terms of like artists like Kamasi Washington are bringing jazz back to the people because they're also incorporating elements of hip hop and things like that. When you think about uh, artists like Questlove, Questlove is a jazz prodigy. He is really a fantastic jazz drummer as well as hip hop drummer and all these things, right? So pulling together, you know, I think about someone like Nate Smith and Kinfolk. Nate Smith, one hundred, he's black through and through, you know, and the stories in his music, uh, you know, I mean, they have an a, a international appeal, a worldwide appeal, but he's talking about black things. And Kinfolk, Kinfolk is actually on a level, it's almost like a jazz, kind of jazz family stone type of situ situation, right? So anyway, all of all, all what we're trying to do is expand the dialogue, expand the dialogue of what is what is and is not quote unquote black. And this is this is a thing. And it's and it's a bit of a struggle. It can be a struggle when people, you know, they don't care what you say. You know, they're gonna still, you know, take it like that. And and after a while, you gotta say, well, you know, I mean, we still family, right? And that's and that's another fact, right? That Family is not about everyone agreeing and being cool. Family, you you related to these people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes. you're not, and you're not, you never not gonna be related to these people. So you got to either, if you're gonna, you know, be in conflict, then then there you go. You know, you either gonna you you either let things slide. So when you know, when Uncle Ruckus, when Uncle Ruckus show up in his MAGA hat, you're gonna have to be like, okay. He's, he's 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 being provocative. You either take the provocation and go with it, or you say, you know what? Pass, please pass the mashed potatoes, please. Right. You know, JB hugged Nixon. Yeah, and it was like, well, we can't, can't we're not canceling JB, you know, and that's just we're not doing it, right? In 2017, you were part of a streaming radio program called the Underground Railroad of the Mind. Yeah, that's my idea. Was there a, was that just a random, let me play vinyls because I love this? Or was there some, let me educate you while I pull out and play these vinyls? Well, an underground, an underground Railroad of the Mind is my occasional um, episodic all vinyl uh, radio streaming show that I do out here and make a part out here in Shaolin, a.k.a. Staten Island. And basically... With the Underground Railroad of, of the Mind, I decided to focus on vinyl, not play CDs, not play files, but go in and, and dig out, dig, dig in the crates and pull out joints. And really part of it is, you know, the enjoyment of putting together a sequence of tunes that tell the story. Like the radio show is like 
the the thing, the internet radio show, is like basically a journey. Each thing, each episode is its own journey. And when I go, I bring a stack of records. And you know, I, you know, I'm I might play Billy Paul, you know, in uh, War of the Gods. You know, what's one of the like what like Billy Paul is known for me and Mr. Jones, Jones right? Right. War of the Gods is like I don't even know how to describe it. It's like the sonic. It's almost like frog funk r&b thing and there was a time when people made these tracks like the new birth and what have you or war you know deliver the word they would make these very expansive kind of tracks as well as you know they would have their singles but on the albums people would kind of you know they would feel a certain way and they would do a certain thing like like Curtis Mayfield was the king of that sort of thing, right? You think about a group like Max Ann, you know what I mean? Like there's all of these wonderful 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s type of situations. Uh, expanding that to, you know, um, you know, take a cat like MF Doom, you know? I mean, I, I tell you what, certain people, when they went, it broke, I mean, it's a, it's a hurt to my heart, right? Because MF Doom, see, I'm also a comic books guy, right? So the fact uh, that this okay. brother made his own Dr. Doom mask, <laughs> to me, that is supreme. That's like as black, that's about as black as it gets. And somebody at Marvel let him alone because he was, because he actually sampled from the old Fantastic Four cartoons and put stuff in it. And I'm like, Somebody at Marvel is somebody at Marvel is is kind of going no 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 let him do his thing <laughs> let him do his thing and to me I hope that when they do I hope they don't forget about MF Doom whenever they put out that Fantastic Four movie I hope they I hope they don't forget about him on that soundtrack yeah that's you know man you you did your homework man I, I did not expect to hear. Anybody, you know, shout out Underground Railroad of the Mind. Yeah. Hey, hey listen, I, I believe in I believe in doing my homework. You're prepared or you're not. So <laughs> yeah, man, you go, yo, yo, I almost got got. <laughs> <laughs> Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you tuned in, this is the sidebar, the podcast of the New York Association of Black Journalists. I am your host for this episode, Michael W. Ray. I am sitting with the most distinguished and honorable Mr. Vernon Reed, a musician's musician. I'll just surmise it down because otherwise I'll be reading accolades all after. When you sit back and look at your career, mm. what do you say was your greatest accomplishment? One thing I would say, and 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 it's, and it really I want to say it's separate from the fact that it's our best known song. There are two things about that song about cult of personality. Number one. We wrote that song in one rehearsal. Like that, that song was written in one rehearsal, and we did not get in the way of the creation of it. And, it, and including when we got into the studio with Ed Stasia, my producer, you know, we played it a different kind of way. And he said, man, you know, we had a whole intro, we had a whole kind of fanfare type of thing. And then we went into the riff. That's how we used to play it at CBGB's. And he said, yo, man, you should just play the sample and get right into it. And we did it, and that's the song that people know. The one thing about, the other thing about that tune is the fact that rock or rock radio, every time they played it, they played Malcolm X's voice. Like getting Malcolm X's voice in the introduction, during the few moments that we have less, 
let's talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. That that his presence is tied to that song. And every time it played in America, Malcolm X's voice was heard. So that was to me pretty extraordinary thing. The other thing I'm really proud of, I mean, it, it just expand like opening of my career. And it's not the most quote unquote financially successful thing, but I, I actually produced a series of blues records featuring James Blood Omer. And James Blood Omer is one of the, he played with Ornette Coleman, he played with my old boss, Ron and Shannon, Ronald Shannon Jackson. He's such a, a, an icon of avant-garde guitar, jazz guitar, but as his voice is 100% South Carolina blues. And um, I'm very 100% authentic Americana, you know? And uh, I'm really proud of those records. Well, let me say thank you for this here particular time. Um, Michael, thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. We wish to express our most sincerest thanks to our distinguished guests. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe and give The Sidebar a great review. As a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in every episode of The Sidebar belong to the individuals who made them and not to the NYABJ. For more information on the NYABJ, please visit www.nyabj.org. Music by Halizna Raps.